Hi, I'm Matt Norton, and we're rolling out to America's favorite diners, drive-ins, and podcast. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, June 25th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Matty, I am fired up, baby. I'm ready to get this thing going. Nick, Monday was World Giraffe Day, which is celebrated on June 21st every year. I didn't know that. I actually just found it out on Monday. So I just wanted to wish you a very happy belated World Giraffe Day. Whoa. Happy World Draft Day. Drafts do wonders for the long neck community. So uh, keep up the good work, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I think giraffes are really cool, especially with their prehensile tongues, which means they can just grab things like we can do with our hands. Um, I also found out that Tuesday was World Rainforest Day. So it was quite the week for holidays that we bring up on this podcast. Huge week. And also just a side note, I used to uh, notoriously cry in rainforest cafes as a kid when the thunderstorm came in. So just a quick little side note. Yeah, me too. When I was 17, I mean, (laughs) also a kid. (laughs) If you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental. Whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, Nick and I wanted to read a few of the reviews people have been leaving for us on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. All right, so I got the first one. So this one is from No with like 100 O's, 14678. And they say that everyone needs to listen to this pod. Insanely instructive and educational about everything that is going on with the planet today, paired with exceptional chemistry between Matt and Nick in discussion. A great listen and so much fun. Yeah, that means a lot. And uh, thank you very much. No 14678 slash. Nick forgot the slash. So oh, I it's the slash. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thought that I was won't a typo. do that to your name. Nope. That was that was the name. Uh, similarly, Darby Hogan says, you'll guaranteed learn something from this podcast. If you love the earth, you'll love this pod. Yeah. Thank you, Darby. I have no idea who that is. Okay. So we will be reading more reviews each week. So please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple podcasts. That way we can thank you right here on the show. Today on TPT, Nick and I are joined by our dear friend and recurring guest host of the show, Dan Walsh. Dan, welcome to the planet today. It is an honor to be on this show. Very excited for today. (laughs) Happy to have you, man. Why don't you help our listeners get to know you a little better before we get started? So I'm a young man with a similar passion for nature and the outdoors as y'all. I have a degree in environmental engineering and worked briefly as one prior to starting Vala Alta, which is an online handkerchief company that I started uh, last year during COVID, right as COVID started, and uh, which is also the sponsor of this show. 
lucky enough. Yeah. So uh, I actually reached out to Dan when I was starting the idea for the show and I said, hey, I would love to partner with Vala Alta some way, uh, you know, on a, on a friend level. But also I, I think my mission kind of aligns with your company's mission and it seemed like a, a natural fit. So happy to have you as a sponsor. Happier to have you on the show. Definitely. And talking about uh, special holidays, this week was uh, National Handkerchiefs Day. Oh. Or so I thought. Or so I thought. I had Googled this like months ago and I had it in my schedule. And then on June 22nd, I looked it up again and it turns out it was just some random dude who wrote a blog post that said <laughs> National Handkerchiefs Day. And like Google picks that up. Like if you go to Google and type in National Handkerchiefs Day, like you'll get that Google box that says June 22nd. But then you like click on the blog post that that comes from, and it's like the guy's like, "Oh, just kidding!" Like, blah, blah, blah. and I'm, it's like totally random, has nothing related to handkerchiefs, <laughs> and I totally fell for it. But um, so, so, so Dan, you you ate the onion. You're I, a boomer. I really fell hard. You know, Google picked it up, and I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it had been vetted, but it had not. Been. Oh my god! It turns out there is no National Handkerchief Day. But hey, so starting this week, National Handkerchief Day is June twenty second. <laughs> I'll, I'll write the blog post. <laughs> yeah. I'll sanction the holiday. Yeah, talk to Bezos and let's see if we can get that going. Yeah. No, I know. Seriously, what the heck? Uh, all right. So let's go ahead and kick off the show with uh, our quick hits of the week. So the first one comes from the Wall Street Journal and was written by Allison Pohl. It's titled, National Parks Are Overcrowded and Closing Their Gates. This one was actually sent to us by a listener named Greg Moeller. So thanks, Greg. This was an interesting follow-up on our episode one discussion about some of the local residents near the New River Gorge National Park and how they were worried about the parks overcrowding kind of dripping out into the local community. So this article was about visitors in southeast Utah and how they're spending more time waiting in line or in their cars to access the two national parks that are located there. Arches National Park recently turned away one guest at 9 a.m. who was told the park was full and they had to try again in three to five hours. Arches had seen a 15% increase in visitors in April this year compared to its April 2019 attendance. Now, the park was closed in April 2020 due to COVID-19, so we don't have numbers to compare it to last April, but still 15% compared to two years ago is definitely substantial. According to Arch's social media pages, the park reaches capacity and has to temporarily close or turn guests away before 9 a.m. on most days. Nearby Canyonlands National Park has seen its visitors increase by 30% over the same time period. The national parks are kind of experiencing this post-COVID boom that started last summer as most parks began reopening. Uh, more people were eager to leave their houses and do some exploring outside and you know do things that you could do socially distance without having to worry about being too close to people back in those late summer peaks. So this boom is boosting local economies, but increased visitors to the park do not come without problems. Two weeks ago, a wildfire spread 20 miles south of Moab National Park, which is also in Utah, after a campfire was left unattended. That ended up burning 5,100 acres by Saturday morning. So a serious problem. Park rangers and residents have also been noting more graffiti, human waste where people are camping far from toilets and trash cans, illegal parking, and walking along areas that are not intended for pedestrians, which can harm sensitive areas of the park. So listen, I, I love national parks, and I'm really happy that a lot more people are starting to visit them, but take care of them while you're there. There's this phrase that's really common among park goers, and it's take only pictures, leave only footprints. And another phrase is leave no trace. So if you're going to go, definitely subscribe to those ideas rather than 
following the footsteps of some of these people who are going off path into the areas you shouldn't be going. Yeah, definitely, Matt. Me and you must have missed this one. So a big thank you to Greg for sending that one in. And uh, this is a shout out to everyone. Please send us any articles you guys want us to talk about at planettodaypod at gmail.com. I'm just thinking how Edward Abbey is rolling over in his grave that it's literally happening at Arches National Monument where he spent most of his time. This guy, Edward Abbey, if you don't know, is kind of like the Henry David Thoreau of the desert. Like he just completely lived in Arches National Monument as a park ranger for season after season. I think he might have went to Moab as well. And uh, highly recommend his book, Desert Solitaire, especially for anyone interested in nature or the outdoors. It is just some beautiful, beautiful work. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And uh, I definitely want to give that book a read. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. So this one comes from Julia C.S. Good Stefani of the Natural Resource Defense Council, or NRDC, titled Salmon, a Natural Climate Solution. I thought this one was so cool, and it's, it's an important way to talk about how important biodiversity is. So healthy wildlife populations generally mean healthier ecosystems. And in this case, the author brings up how salmon populations are declining and even disappearing from most of their historic spawning ranges in North America. Salmon are one of the key members of the Western food chain and feed members of the food chain as small as insects and as large as orcas. So salmon are also a huge driver of the economy in coastal and rural fishing communities stretching from California all the way up to Alaska. Salmon are also a natural fighter of climate change, which the article talks about. And it sounds a bit crazy, and we're not talking about salmon hopping on a podcast to inspire some environmental advocacy. However, if any salmon want to hop on the pod, uh, message us at Planet Today Pod. Um, When salmon return to their birthplaces to die, their bodies eventually decompose. And they can fertilize the shrubs and the trees near the river there. This article describes how healthy trees are necessary for lowering CO2 emissions and how these fish actually grow the forest. Salmon have really high nitrogen contents, and nitrogen is a great natural fertilizer for trees. Uh, Some scientists found that Sitka spruce trees grow 20 inches thick in about 86 years in areas where salmon are present. Without them, it'll take 307 years to grow 20 inches thick. That is such an interesting fact. I would say they're like the Scots turf builder for trees. Um, And also, just for the record, I am completely and fully willing to see if I can get some salmon to come on the podcast, even if I have to take a trip (laughs) out to Alaska to do some field reporting or something. And hey, while you're on the uh, National Resources Defense Council's website, you should check out their issue with tissue report, which gives a list of uh, manufacturers, tissue manufacturers who produce their tissue from recycled fibers which uh, is always great. Wow. Definitely go check that out. All right. So this next one comes from Zachary B. Wolf of CNN. And the title of the article is The American West is Drying Out. Things Will Get Ugly. This article talks about how climate change related droughts are impacting the region. And there's also an interactive picture where you can look at a side-by-side comparison of the water levels in Lake Mead, which is located on the border of Arizona and Nevada between 2000 and 2020. Um, I say interactive because there's there's a bar that you can kind of move across and it'll show you panning across the lake just what the water levels look like. It's really cool. You should definitely check it out. And 
as a whole, the United States is experiencing an extreme drought right now where more than a quarter of the states in the country are now feeling the effects of years of drying. The U.S. government is likely to declare the first ever water shortage along the Colorado River, and some states are looking at rations and restrictions, so much so that the San Francisco Bay Area is asking residents to reduce their water consumption by 15% compared to their 2019 levels. Northern California's Lake Oroville is experiencing such a high level of drought that houseboats were removed from the water, and the low water level may force a hydroelectric power plant offline. So we're not just looking at decreased drinking water or water for showering or washing your clothes. This is now impacting energy, and this also impacts agriculture. In Oregon, farmers and the federal government are arguing over whether the state's supply of potatoes or saving the state's fish are more important. The drought is creating widespread complications across many different sectors. In Lake Mead, which we talked about earlier, less snowpack and more evaporation from hot temperatures have caused the water level to drop by 140 feet since 2000. It's currently at barely more than a third of its capacity. Yeah, this is super scary. And uh, I can actually remember a couple years ago when me and Dan lived in California, there was a wildfire legitimately right behind our house. And I remember going to, the wor- uh, going to work the next morning in an N95 mask before they were cool <laughs> and seeing uh, these things that looked like snowflakes like falling from the sky. But it was just straight ash, literally just ash. Yeah, I agree. Like reading this article was very sobering. I feel like I get a dose of water scarcity every so often and then I kind of forget about it. But then when you read the details like throughout this article and how almost intense it's getting, it's kind of scary. But it, like Nick was saying, it reminds me also when we were visiting a friend in El Paso and we saw the Rio Grande River just completely dry. Like it wasn't there. There was nothing there. And he was just telling us that that's where it usually is. But it was the middle of the summer in El Paso, so super hot. And it had just completely dried up for that year. I don't know. I'm pretty sure the Colorado River feeds into the Rio Grande at some point, which has so many just um, demands on that river at points higher up than El Paso, Texas, that it just completely drained that river. And like there's a bridge going into Mexico and you're not walking over any water. Like you're just walking over the land and it's like just wild to think about because it literally translates to big river in Spanish from Spanish to English. That's, that's super scary. I mean, the Colorado river sources so many different communities, water, and also like it's what feeds Coors Light. So how will the mountains (laughs) be able to turn blue without the water flowing? Who knows? They're first to get their, their water. Yeah, though, they're know? the first on the line. Oh, as long I as bet. we have Coors Light and <laughs> South Texas or whatever, Western Texas doesn't have water, we'll make <laughs> our sacrifices. Yeah, as, as long as the mountains are blue, I won't be. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this last one comes from EcoWatch, where Andrea Germanos writes, Belgium court deems inadequate climate policy a human rights violation. Yeah, so I figured we would end the quick hits on like a little more of a positive note because the last one, like Dan said, was very sobering. So um, I, I really feel that this is a, a big step in making real progress. A court in Brussels, and it was one of the higher courts in their system, determined that Belgium's government was acting too slowly in its climate policy and the lack of action breaches the country's duty of care. This ruling comes after a six-year standoff between the government and a nonprofit called Climate Case, which represents over 58,000 citizens. The court determined that, quote, 
By not taking all necessary measures to prevent the detrimental effects of climate change, Belgian authorities had breached the right to live and the right to respect for private and family life of the European Convention on Human Rights. Climate Case said the lawsuit is necessary because, quote, temperature records continue to be broken because flooding is becoming more frequent, but above all, because there is no real Belgian climate policy. The organization also references a case in the Netherlands in 2019 where the Dutch climate organization Urgenda won a similar case that has led to an ambitious climate law. Now, Climate Case was also hoping that the ruling would result in a 42% reduction of emissions compared to 1990 levels by 2025, which would then turn into at least a 55% reduction by 2030 before hitting net zero emissions by 2050. The judge said that they couldn't authorize that part of the lawsuit due to the separation of powers between the government and the courts. But still, this is a really positive first step, knowing that the Belgian government now needs to take action because they have been determined by a court that they weren't doing enough. Yeah, and this actually goes back to last week, too, with like the G7 not making good on their word of bringing financial aid to um, countries facing climate change. So, yeah, good parallel there. Yeah. Um, All right. So do we want to take a break, Maddie? Yeah, let's do it. And then when we get back, we're going to talk about a very interesting conversation about the environmentalism of the fashion industry. Nikki, I have a question for you. Do you ever wish you had something other than your own T-shirt to wipe your forehead with while you're hiking? Maddie, there is nothing worse than having to turn your shirt into your towel. It makes you look like you're expecting to hike without even sweating. I mean, grow up. And the worst is when you go to wash your shirt after and your collar is just disgustingly stretched out. Like, come on, use something else. Luckily, we have a sponsor for you that can fix all of your sweating needs on the trail, Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Go get them, guys. Valaalta.com. What a world. Welcome back to the planet today. Nick and I are still joined by Dan Walsh. And as Dan mentioned at the start of the show, he started his own handkerchief company with a focus on sustainability last year. So we figured that there would be no better topic for Dan's first episode on our podcast than environmentalism of the clothing industry and fast fashion. When we say fast fashion, we are talking about an approach used by manufacturers to make clothes quickly and cheaply, knowing that trends and what's considered in style can change just as quickly. This approach is really common in stores like H&M and Forever 21, and the idea is that they set trends based on what kind of clothes they're going to put on their shelves, sell them at a cheap cost so people can buy them in large numbers and make them in style, 
And then they'll change those trends so that those same people need to keep buying their clothes. Rinse, repeat, and you get this cycle of buying new clothes, getting rid of your old clothes. When I think of the environmentalism of this industry, two things are jumping out at me right away. First is the size of the industry, and the second is the amount of resources they must be using. Whether we're talking land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions, etc., clothing is a huge industry worldwide. So globally, 80 billion articles of clothing are bought each year, according to the documentary The True Cost. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation discovered that clothing production and consumption has doubled in just the last 15 years. When starting Fala Alta, I really just didn't know more than the average person how bad the fashion industry kind of is. And then upon delving into it deeper, it's really, I mean, it starts at the very source. I mean, the very materials that are being grown, whether it's cotton or whether they're sourcing from polyester or other petroleum-based products, it is really just inefficient and wasteful. And it's at every step along the way, there's many things to improve upon. Like starting from the cultivation of cotton, it makes up just 2.4% of the world world arable land, but accounts for a disproportionate 11% of the world's pesticide use. Because cotton fibers are seed hairs, they're exposed and they have no defenses, no natural defenses, and therefore it's super easy for insects and pests to just destroy the crop. And then going on the same thing with water use, it takes 2,700 liters of water to make one cotton shirt, which is nearly unbelievable because that is 2,700 kilograms of water, which is over 5,000 pounds of water for one cotton shirt, which is just like, I almost don't even believe that, but I've just seen that statistic like everywhere on the internet, which is mind blowing. And it's the equivalent to what a single person drinks in two and a half years. Oh my goodness. And it's even compounded because 73% of the world's cotton is grown on land that requires irrigation, but even worse, 57% takes place in areas under high or extreme water stress. So I'm thinking like maybe India or even in the United States, like we were just talking earlier about uh, Western United States, like these areas grow cotton and it's it doesn't really make sense to grow such a water intensive crop especially in an area that is under extreme water stress so So, dan what's something that you know people who are manufacturing cotton and those companies like what can they do to kind of offset the fact that it does take a lot of water and it does have such a, a high um impact due to all the pesticide usage um it's tough. I mean, if you are a cotton producer, if you're a cotton farmer and you are willing to, I mean, you could totally, I think in a matter of three years, you can convert your farm from a conventional cotton yielding farm to an organic farm with no fertilizer or whatnot, but you're going to take a hit on the yield of total cotton. So it's just a, a hard trade off. And I think I saw a statistic that less than 1% or just 1% of the cotton growers grow organic cotton, which is a shockingly low 
amount of the cotton producers. Or you could use like efficient irrigation technologies, just like now, I think more so than ever, um, people are really starting to buckle down and, and be cheap kind of when it comes to water and just efficient, really. You could do a micro irrigation or a drip irrigation system, but again, it's just gonna have a very high expense to your farm at first, but in the long run, you'll be using a lot less water, especially in these regions that are extremely stressed as it is. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, Dan. And, and another problem that I want to bring up is the energy related to the fashion industry. And, you know, long gone are the days of people hand sewing whatever clothes that they need and their family needs or buying clothes from someone who does that. As we mentioned earlier, this whole industry is just absolutely massive. And so is its energy consumption. With the majority of the fashion industry's energy coming from fossil fuels, its greenhouse gas emissions are also massive. Yeah, I think the global fashion industry accounts for around 4% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. I've seen numbers up to 10%, but it seems to be more down towards the 4%. But that's still 2.1 billion tons of greenhouse gas on a conservative estimate, which is a lot. That's a lot. That is a lot. Literally billions of tons in terms of weight is how I picture it, which is just like bonkers. And then when you look at the fashion industry, about 70% of their emissions come from upstream activities like material production, whether it's farming or refining oil for polyester materials, and then the preparation and processing of those fibers. I know for Vala Alta, we do linen, and the energy required to go from flax to linen, it's a lot. And that's just, that's a natural material, so. Yeah, and and that's not even factoring in what I was going to think of when I first started thinking of energy production related to this transportation. It's not like people are just going to wherever, you know, the cotton or the polyester is created and buying their clothes from the source. It gets shipped all around the world. So along with the upstream production that you're talking about, this also just has a global footprint that goes everywhere. So it's, it's even deeper than we think. Yeah. And I'm sure that the industry itself is not relying too much on actually renewable energy sources definitely and it even goes beyond that where it's like from the very source the textile industry relies heavily on non-renewable resources somewhere in the range of two-thirds of all fibers are derived from oil and then beyond that they rely heavily on the use of carbon intensive fertilizers and pesticides for growing conventional cotton which in growing conventional cotton, 70% of the emissions associated with it come from the use of fertilizers and pesticides. So cotton in and of itself is not a bad crop, but everything that goes into it, whether it's the water usage or the fertilizers or pesticides, it begins to add up and really starts to have an impact. So it's kind of just the mass production of it is what's creating the problem, not the crop itself. Like, really, when you delve into it, when you look under the hood, there's just, it's so many things. And like you said, like, the fashion industry just, like, churns out style after style. And um, 
they just have to keep making more and more cotton. So it's really kind of a, a treadmill that we are on, and I don't know. Not only that, but like the place of actual creation has changed. Like we're not producing any of our own stuff. Like not as much as we used to, at least. Like I, I'm looking at a stat that says the U.S. was producing 95 percent of their clothes domestically in the 1960s, and today it's now more like three percent. Jeez! Wow. Not to make this a Vala Alta ad, but um, <laughs> when I was starting it, I wanted everything to be made in the United States, and I had a very hard time finding somewhere like to get it made in the United States. It was shockingly difficult. I did not think it was going to be that hard, but that's that's yeah. super interesting, though. I mean, I I'm, I would have guessed if you told me that we used to produce almost all of our clothes and now we produce much less than that but to hear it go from 95% to 3% I I mean that was a that was a natural reaction I hadn't heard that stat before Nick said it so <laughs> I was noti- notably shocked so a, a trend that I want to bring up that's becoming more popular and can reduce your environmental impact is upcycling clothing or thrift shopping so upcycling is when you take older clothes and transform them instead of getting rid of them and thrift shopping is more buying secondhand clothing. So either way, it results in someone not getting rid of their clothes in the conventional way once they're done wearing them, like you're not throwing them out. Um, You're gonna be changing them up a little bit. You can take them apart, sew them together with other clothing to make cool, interesting, unique clothes, or you can sell them to somebody else or donate them so that someone else can enjoy them the way that they are. Yeah, I'm all about the upcycle. I'm all about Goodwill, Salvation Army. Put me in any one of those stores and I am <laughs> in heaven. Dude, that, that's what it's all about. I saw a crazy stat from the World Resources Institute that the number of clothes the average consumer purchases has increased 60% between 2000 and 2014. And the clothes are kept about half as long, which is shocking. Okay, so either I just never go out of style or I have never been in style, but I think I've worn the same stuff since 2014. (laughs) I'm right there with you, Matt. I love thrift shopping and I wear my clothes until there's holes in them. But at that point, the clothing reaches its end of life and the EPA estimated over 17 million tons of textile waste was generated in the U.S. in 2018, which, if you divide that by the population, equals 103 pounds per person, which, again, is just mind-blowing. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. And if you were to divide that up, 19% of the textile waste was combusted, 14% was recycled, and the remaining 66% was sent to landfills, which stinks. Yeah, I actually read an article preparing for this that was giving me a similar stat, and it was um, Newsweek magazine wrote something in January of this year that the EPA did a study a few years ago, and it found that 84% of all clothes in the U.S. end up in landfills or incinerators. So you've got to think that some, if not most of those could have been donated or recycled. The same article also mentioned that rather than throwing out clothes, some brands such as H&M offer to recycle clothes and create new textiles from them. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as my t-shirt that I am done wearing will become a new t-shirt. Yeah. And I think one of the most sobering stats I learned in regards to this too, was that less than 1% of all textiles that are recycled 
are later remade into new clothing and that instead they're shredded and repurposed into items such as acoustic dampening materials, carpet padding, and building insulation. I mean, it's like, it's not even getting used to make more clothes. Like, why even recycle it at that point, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's awesome to see it get another life in these new materials, but I'm shocked. I wonder, I don't know this offhand, but I wonder what the reason is that it can't be or it isn't recycled into new textiles. Yeah, that'd be interesting to find out. You know, I actually have a pair of socks and they're made from recycled water bottles. Um, They do not really moisture wick well, and they're definitely not my favorite for hikes or runs for that reason, but they are surprisingly soft. Um, Yeah, I'm definitely shocked that, you know, less than 1% of recycled textiles are made into clothes, but now I know where the acoustic dampener that I'm using for the first time on this episode of this podcast <laughs> is made of. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it's awesome to see them get a new life. But when it comes to recycled fibers, especially recycled plastic fibers, there's a real dilemma because an average of 700,000 microplastic fibers are released in a standard laundry load and half a million tons of microfibers end up in oceans every year. It is also estimated that 35% of microplastics in the world's oceans originate from synthetic textiles, which are, of course, toxic to the marine wildlife. I mean, if that's happening by just people doing their laundry, what can you do? Like, what we can't just, like, not wash our clothes, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think I personally don't have one, but there's a way to filter your microfibers and there's a couple ways you could retrofit your washing machine to take the hose the drain hose put it in one end of a filter kind of like a, a brittle water filter oh, and then okay. you, you attach yeah it comes with the hose and you could attach it there so it's like um a filter on the the water passing through the, the washing machine or i believe that they also have microfiber laundry bags that you could put your polyester clothing into before you put them in the wash that will prevent some of those fibers from being released. Yeah, it seems like retrofitting the filters on people's washing machines would be a little high tech for some people, uh, myself included. I definitely would not want to mess with my washing machine. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in checking out those fiber collection laundry bags that you mentioned. If it's something as simple as just taking you know, the tights that I wear on, on runs when it's cold and throwing them in a bag to put in the wash... That's not a, a big ask for me, so. Yeah, definitely. It's a very low effort thing to, to help the uh, the waterways. Yeah, and every every little step, you know, every little impact adds up. So there's something cool that I learned last year through uh, the Business Wars podcast. It's presented by Wondery. Not sure if either of you guys have listened to it, but the story um, of Patagonia versus the North Face was on, uh, I think it was like March or April of last year. And basically the two companies became rivals because they both wanted to A, make a profit and they filled a similar role in people's closets and B, they wanted to focus on sustainability. And the the idea was North Face was more of a let's make good products and sustainability is a focus. Patagonia was more sustainability is our focus while we make these products. And it's a really cool six-part series. They dive really heavily into the company's origins and what sustainability really means to each brand. And like I said, I listened to it either last March or April, so I don't remember every detail. But the gist of it was that 
Patagonia felt that charging more for sustainable products and bringing that sustainability and environmental consciousness to their customers' eyes would allow them to succeed in the long run. And I mean, even today, they encourage repairs on any of their clothing that rips. And they're no stranger to environmental activism. They're one of those brands that, for me, when they talk about environmentalism or just activism in general, it seems to be genuine because of their long-standing history with getting involved with these sort of processes. Yeah, I feel like Patagonia is literally the gold standard for like sustainably cre- uh, creating garments. You know, like yeah, yeah, no free ads, but uh, definitely a big fan of my my Patagonia fleece, my Patagonia pants. They're, they're great. No, definitely high quality stuff. Um, Dan, before we let you go, what are some of the things that you focus on that make Vala Alta a sustainable brand? From the start, I would say Vala Alta's ethos is being sustainable because it's kind of about opting to use handkerchiefs as opposed to single-use paper alternatives. But when the focus is on the material and the fabric and the textile portion of it, we really try to create the best and definitely the most eco-friendly handkerchief possible. And like we were saying before, it really starts at the source. We use Irish linen that is woven of 100% traceable European-grown flax, and the farmers we work with are audited to ensure they're meeting quality and environmental standards before going on to be woven into Irish linen and sent to the United States, all in all reducing the travel distance and ensuring the quality and that the environment is considered in every step along the way. Yeah, and that's why we are proud to have you as our first sponsor of the show. I mean, Nick and I can tell you that um, it was between you and uh, the Nissan Leaf. Oh, <laughs> I know, one. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, we are big, big fans between Vala Alta, the Nissan Leaf, and uh, Greta Thunberg, and we, we ended up going with Vala Alta, so oh, thank you for believing in us. Jeez, of course, of course. An honor <laughs> to be here, an honor to sponsor the show. Yeah, and like when, when you first were were telling me about it i was like i definitely had like my doubts and then you gave me one and i was like oh shit, like this is real like i have dude it, they're special once you get them yeah in you got to get them in people's hands because like right when you get it you're like wait i can use this in like five different ways and like the most notable one is like okay you're walking through the store you're walking through the grocery store and like you feel a sneeze coming on just keep it in the back pocket you pull it quick and boom, like you're not gonna make a you're not gonna make a mess out of your like shirt. It's like a, a disaster waiting to happen, you know. You don't need the whole elbow sneeze. Definitely no. I mean, I got mine off Etsy at the start, and I was just like, "Yo, how are these things not more common?" And so that's kind of where it all started. All right, so with that, I think we are gonna wrap it up for the day. Uh, next week will be our first documentary review of the podcast. We want to have some listener interaction every month, and we figured that when we do these, it'll be a really easy way to get some people involved. So um, they're moving forward. They're going to be the first episode of every month, and we'll tell you a week in advance. That way you can watch it and send us your thoughts on Twitter, Instagram, by email, and we'll read some out on the pod as we you know, get to important parts that people are bringing up. So the first one that we're going to be doing is Before the Flood, the National Geographic um, documentary, which is available on Disney+. Plus. If you have Disney+, Plus, you got it. If you don't have Disney+, Plus, guarantee you know someone who does. Get that login password, baby. Um, until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at PlanetTodayPod, or you can email us at PlanetTodayPod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate if you shared the show with a friend. Just one friend, maybe two. 
maybe all of your friends, but you know, do what you got to do. Tell someone you think would like the show or share our posts on our social medias. Aside from that, if you have questions you'd like us to answer or talk about, send them to us. If you see a story that you want us to cover, you can send that too. I mean, we had Greg Moeller send us one this week and we talked about it because it was applicable to the show. And if you have a guest you want us to have on the show, let us know and we can try to make it happen. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on Google or Spotify, the reviews there really help our show grow. And like we did at the top of this show, moving forward, we're going to be reading reviews as a thank you. So get your name out there by helping us out. If you don't feel like the show is worth five stars, that is okay too. And you can let us know in the comments on Apple Podcasts after giving your five-star rating. We can take any sort of constructive criticism as long as you rate it five stars. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are produced every week by Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? Yes, you can hear more from me on soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Please do. We were also joined today by our great friend, Dan Walsh. Dano, where can the people keep up with you and Vala Alta? Uh, you can keep up with us at Vala underscore Alta on all the socials and uh, head over to the website and subscribe to the newsletter. Hey, and while you're there, you can enter code TPT for 15% off. Oh, that was sure. just smooth as the other side of the pillow, Maddie. Beautiful. Getting, getting <laughs> decent at this. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Everyone have a great weekend, and we will catch you right here next Friday where we will be reviewing Before the Flood, which you can watch on Disney+. Plus. See you next week. Peace. Peace.